Well, I want to thank you all for being here this morning. Uh, last week we spoke about uh, the supremacy of Christ. We talked about his greatness, especially his greatness in creation. Um, and for me, this, what we talked about yesterday isn't theoretical. Excuse me, yesterday, last week. What we talked about last week is not theoretical. It is motivation for today. Because um, we're going to do it. Mark, why don't you? <clears throat> why don't we do like last week? Let's do it. Yeah. I'll get out the. We'll get there. It says Colossians two, two and three b. Uh, for me, it's motivation because this week we'll be talking about uh, walking with God. I'm sure most of you have heard the concept uh, that Brother Lawrence, I don't know if he was the one who actually uh, thought it up or just propagated through his writings, uh, the concept of practicing the presence of God. Uh, <clears throat> we come on Sunday mornings. It's a great time of fellowship. It's a great time of worship. I truly Personally, I was not raised in a liturgical church, and I love the fact that we can worship together uh, around communion, around the liturgy, uh, and praising God together. But as we all know, the real issues, or excuse me, that is a real issue, but also a real issue is what does the rest of our week look like? Now, I'm uh, possibly like many of you as when I joined the staff of Campus Crusade, now called Crew, we had to write down our testimony. And that was a really difficult thing for me to do because I can't remember not believing in God. And I can't remember not believing in Jesus. I was raised in a Christian home by Christian parents. We went to a Bible-believing Christian church, and I grew up believing. So I had to actually work my testimony around some of the things that I think we'll be talking about this morning. In other words, it's one thing to come to church, it's one thing to believe, it's one thing to be baptized, and then what does our life look like? And what is required that our lives look like? Because by the time I reach college, my testimony is, is that my life looked a little bit different than my fraternity brothers in some ways. I mean, I was never passed out face down drunk in the mud like a friend of mine, but uh, my life in terms of discipline, in terms of uh, temptation, was at least as bad, if not worse, than those who were not following Christ. So where was God and where was walking with him? So Paul talks about, oh, great. I didn't realize we were up and running. Just to review, uh, Paul first starts with a greeting and prayer. Most of you are sitting here, so let me just block you so that you can't see the screen at all. I'll try to move a little bit. There you go. Paul starts, like he often does, with a greeting and then a prayer. And then there is this wonderful passage about the preeminence of Christ, which, as I mentioned, is the motivation for me to walk with Christ and to practice his presence because of who he is. If he is absolutely the means and the purpose of creation and yet died for us, he's worth at least following. Then there's a passage that we simply don't have time to look at. It is Paul's ministry to the church, although we have to look at one verse in this. Next, next slide. 
Paul writes after talking about his sufferings on behalf of, of the body of Christ, uh, he sums up, in my opinion, his ministry and his purpose in all of his ministry. And he says, and we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And this is another way of explaining what I hope we'll be talking about, not just today, but frankly, almost every time that we're here in this church. The word complete does not mean perfect. It means <clears throat> that we have everything necessary to follow the Lord. I use the word simply spiritual maturity. Hebrews talks about not being children. James talks about not being tossed to and fro by every different idea that comes along. Uh, and Paul says we need to be complete in Christ. And that was the goal of his ministry. That's the goal, I hope, of our time this morning, as I said, literally every time we come here. So we're going to start off by looking at what I think is Paul's main thought. I uh, have a different outline than most commentators. I believe that this is one long passage that goes from Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, and goes all the way to really the end of the chapter. And it's just practical Christian living. But Paul starts off this verse, uh, Colossians 2, verse 6, with what I think is one of the keys or one of the main points of his thought. And this was all by way of introduction, so before we get into this, just let me pray. Lord, I thank you that you have not left us alone, that you have given us your word, you have given us not just instructions and commands, but you've given us explanations. You have revealed to us who you are and why you're worthy of our love and obedience. I thank you and praise you that you've not left us alone and that you have given us your spirit and your spirit indwells us. And I pray that your spirit would speak through me and would open the heart of all of our uh, hearts and minds this morning as we look at your word. Be here among us and be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul writes, after talking about his ministry to the church, he says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith. <clears throat> Let me just ask a very simple question. Even if you were raised in the church or if you weren't raised in the church, there's, uh, the Bible seems pretty clear that there is a time where we haven't received Christ and then that we have, even if we can't identify that moment. So for all of us here, if we are to walk as we receive Jesus Christ, how did we receive him? By the way, this is not a trick question. Please let's not spend too much time here. So how did we receive Jesus Christ? March 17th, 1990, a prayer of salvation. A prayer of salvation. That's a great testimony. I wish we had time to hear the whole story. I'm looking for a theological answer. So, <laughs> so how did we receive Jesus Christ? Yes. Uh, how about we just think of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? For by grace you have been saved through faith. Right. Right. Now, the thing is, in many groups, if I ask that question, how have we received Jesus? Most everyone gets very quickly to the point, well, we received him by faith. And that's not what Ephesians, I guess I should have put Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 up here. That is not what Ephesians says. It says that we received him 
first by grace, and then our response through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is in the same exact way that we are to walk with him, that we are to fellowship with him, that we are to follow him, obey him. It starts first with God's initiative to us. In talking about our salvation, it is God who reaches out to us while we were yet sinners. In talking about our sanctification and our Christian life on this earth, it is still the same first step that God every day is reaching out to us in grace with all that we need for the Christian life for that day. It doesn't start off with me trying to please him. That would be a work salvation and it would be a work sanctification. It starts off with understanding that God by his very nature is gracious and loves us and is reaching out to us for fellowship and is reaching out to us with everything that we need regardless of the situation, good situations, difficult situations. It starts by his grace and then we respond to who he is and his grace through faith, believing what he says. I underlined the word walk. I think that's pretty clear. This is the Christian life. It is not uh, a moment in time. It is a process that lasts through our whole life as we walk with him. Other verbs used in the New Testament, abide with him, live with him. It's the same process of walking. But what I want, to, what I want you to see here, which I think is important, is a mixed metaphor. Paul says, having been firmly rooted, past tense, talking about our salvation, we have been placed into Christ, firmly rooted, unable to be ripped up from Christ, but then it goes into a present continuous, having been built up, excuse me, and now being built up in him. And the metaphor switches from a tree or some kind of plant that has deep roots to a house that is being built. And I can't think of a better metaphor for our Christian lives because all of us have various rooms in the house, whether it's our family or it's our work or it's our hobbies or it's our dreams, it's desires, you know, this life of ours has many different compartments, and it's the Lord who is building it. Now, the problem is, is that most of us were involved in the process of building our own lives without the Lord. And now that he has come into our lives, he is making, I wish you all spoke Polish and Russian, he is making a complete uh, renovation Sometimes that means cha small changes, but sometimes there are rooms where he comes in and says, gee, this is beautiful, but it doesn't glorify me, and I'm going to completely tear it down. Now, maybe you've experienced that. I experienced that when I was young. I was, <clears throat> Mark and I were just talking about, where's Mark Frost? He's probably, he's uh, getting ready for choir practice. He explained to someone that back in the dark ages, he studied uh, computer science, and I said, no, no, no. I studied in the dark ages, computer science. Remember, you, you're all too young. You know, these cardboard cards that had little holes punched in them? Yeah, yeah, there we go. That was very long time ago, and that was my life. I loved it. And I was, forgive me for saying this, I was good at it. And the Lord said, well, that's great, but that's not what's going to happen. And he completely renovated the course of my life. It can get pretty serious sometimes. 
I would never in a million years have asked that the Lord take my wife. I expected we would grow old together, and I expected that we would enjoy our grandchildren together and minister together for many more years to come. Sometimes it's painful. Some of us here have had our, our marriages ripped apart. Some of us have lost loved ones. We've lost jobs, careers, and we wonder, is God really with us? And I would like to use this metaphor here that Paul uses. Yes, he's very much with you, in spite of the pain. And almost because of the pain that he wants to use for your growth and for your good. And that's not easy to say, because pain is difficult. But the metaphor, Paul says, we're firmly rooted in Christ. That salvation can't be taken away. But the process of sanctification is a rebuilding. We're being built up how? In Christ, not in ourselves not the dreams we had before, or the desires, or the direction, but we're being built up in Christ, and he is making all things beautiful and new. And I want you to remember that, because life can be, at times, very difficult. So the first, I believe that this is Paul's overarching picture of the Christian life, is that we start the day with grace, and we respond to his grace by faith. This will look different than maybe we think, he goes on in verse 8 to say, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For those of us, this is very clear if we came to Christ at a later age. We had maybe a decade, maybe two, maybe three or four decades of learning the world's way of bettering yourself behavior modification, all kinds of different books, all kinds of different uh, psychological theories have been advanced. And I'm not even saying we shouldn't read this and be aware of those things. But Paul is saying, don't be taken captive by man's philosophy. Don't be deceived according to the tradition, even the religious traditions of men, according to the principles of this world. Because what we need to cling to is not these principles or these teachings but we need to cling to Christ. Now in Paul's day, what he was fighting was a form of legalism in the very first century where the Jews who had become Christians and believed in Christ, they would literally follow Paul and they would expand on his teaching by saying, if you become a Christian, then you need to follow the Old Testament and you need to be circumcised. And Paul wrote a whole book called Galatians about that you cannot be justified by circumcision. In this book, it's different. And this book is a little bit more relevant to us because he's going to talk about these principles in three different commands. And we don't have time to look at everything. You'll see this quite clearly. Um, why, according, why do we hang on to Christ? I added the verse 9 here. It says, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And this is what we talked about last week, is that he is God, fully God, in the flesh. So this is what we don't have time for. First, Paul reminds the Colossians of everything that's true about them. And I will do it, but hopefully in less than a minute. He says, in him you have been made complete. Next, next one. Your hearts have been circumcised. In other words, that old nature, that flesh, has been removed. Next one, Mark. Through baptism, we have been buried with him and raised up. In other words, we are now on the opposite. If you think about Egypt and coming out of Egypt, 
At one point, they were on the same side of the Red Sea as the Egyptians, and then, and what Paul calls in another passage, the baptism of Moses, they went through the Red Sea, they were on the other side of the Red Sea, never to return to Egypt, never to return to that life of death and slavery. Instead, they were raised up to newness of life. This is what has happened to us. Next one. We were dead in our sins and made alive together with Christ. Next one, Mark. He has forgiven us all our sins. There is nothing you've done. There's nothing you've thought. There's no action that you have committed that has not been forgiven. There's no area of your life right now where you're struggling with sin that has not been forgiven. And his future for you is that you would be made holy. Two more, I think. We are not under the law of sin and death, and this will be very clear in this passage. And Jesus has disarmed and triumphed over our spiritual enemies. Now, any of these points, we could take a whole Sunday morning, if not more than a Sunday morning. But I think you've all have heard talks about this, and I want to move on to Paul's main thought here in chapter 2. He goes on and says, Because of all these things that are true of us, and because of who Jesus is, Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Well, let's think about this a little bit. We're in a church that loves its holidays, does it not? In fact, if I, uh, there's a, a holy day or a holiday coming up, all Souls Day, All Saints Day, November 1st, All Souls Day, November 2nd. And there will be a service here, and I'm very disappointed because I was actually asked to speak, and I'm going to be overseas. I really wish I could be with you. So if Paul is saying that these are just mere shadows, why do we do them? I'm not Anglican by birth, so come on, all you Anglican people here. Help me out. I, I've talked enough. Why do we have these uh, festivals or new moons or even this Sabbath day if they're just a shadow? Henny. Very good. What else? Bruce. Look forward. Okay, so. Right, so looking back and looking forward. Anybody else? For the community. Well, I guess that covers it. It's past, <laughs> present, and future. And actually, there's a lot more. It reminds us of God. It reminds us of who he is. It reminds us of his character. It reminds us of what he's done for us. It reminds us of those because we, are, we live in community. The one coming up, all saints. Yes, go ahead. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Martin can do day, Fourth of July, you know, Labor Day, like there are there we live in kind of a liturgy no matter what we do. Right. right? There's there are seasons that come every year. Exactly. But the church uses the liturgy to like form us as Christians. And this is the key. Paul is not think about this. The sacrifices in the Old Testament were of a type or even just a shadow of the true sacrifice to come. It doesn't mean that they weren't important. But as Hebrew says, they never washed away sin. 
Same here. We may have certain new moons or festivals or Sabbath, like it's said here, and other churches might have different. They are to point us to Christ, and they are to point us to God. But they don't make us righteous, and they don't make us holy in our day-to-day -day thing. But they can help by especially reminding us who God is. We need to remember they're just a shadow of what is still to come, and that is Jesus' return. Next one, he says, because of all that is Jesus is and because of all that Jesus has done for us, he goes on to say, therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival. Oh, excuse me. I'm just repeating. He then goes on to say, if you have died with, the, with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Now, probably in the context of the first century, again, with uh, much of the church still being a Jewish church, what Paul has in mind here are, are the dietary regulations from the Old Testament. Don't eat this, don't touch that, etc., etc. That doesn't really apply to us. But let me ask you a question. Do we have similar type things? And if so, can you give an example? I'm so glad you're with us this morning <laughs> answering my questions. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yes, you're absolutely right, but I'm not sure I want to stand here and say you're right. We are free to touch those. <laughs> Right. I would say that there is, we tend to, I have been judged for eating meat because there are those who say we need to be vegetarians. And I'm talking about Christians. I'm not talking outside the church. I've, I've been judged for any number of things. Anyone else have an example? Yes. That's, that's a better, now you're taking it out of the food, but it's the same principle. Because you're in the scientific world, you're, you're really, there's, you're under a lot of pressure not to believe certain things. Very good. But, go ahead. Oh, vote. <laughs> yes. I was waiting, I asked Seth to bring that up so we could talk politics this morning. That'll go, <laughs> Bruce. <laughs> yes. Two more, and then, then we have to move on. Yes, go ahead. I know there's some um, more, shall we say, puritanical denominations or non-dominational evangelical churches who uh, sort of poo-poo the idea of wine and the Eucharist, alcohol. Or just no drinking of alcohol. I was raised not drinking. There was no alcohol in the house for no cooking of any kind. Really, I don't regret that, but still, last one. <laughs> I think how we raise our kids in school. Oh. Well, obviously, we're all supposed to homeschool, and if you don't, you're... I was actually accused by someone who's saying, you are killing the genius of your child by not homeschooling. <laughs> so this is what we do. Now, the question is, if you are living in the... Uh, why, as if you are living in the world, do you submit yourself to such decrees? Why do we submit ourselves to these kind of decrees? This is important. I think so. 
I think we need to be aware, and Paul is for sure, there is a huge pressure from those who had the Old Testament and the sacrifices and before, uh, before the temple, but even after the temple was destroyed, there was this huge pressure is if you're going to be spiritual, you need to do this. And there was a very strong religious or social or family or any other kind of pressure. And that can really force us to do things that we think will make us spiritual, but do not. I'm running out of time here. Look how Paul sums this up at the very end of chapter 2. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indul indulgence. Now, I don't have time. I would normally ask this question, but I don't have time. Let me add some things. Are you having your quiet time in the morning? There are those who fast and therefore judge others who don't fast. Uh, I've experienced that. Um, there's all kinds of religious practices that we as Christians have accepted as the norm. And yet was, what does Paul say here about some very good practices? What does he say? He says this self-abasement, this severe treatment of the body, self-made religion, are no value against fleshly indulgence. Why is that true? Why do these rules, whatever they are, are of no value against fleshly indulgence? This is key. They're self-made. Thank you. That's one reason. They're self-made, or if I could change that to man-made. Go ahead. Because it's, I didn't hear. Yes. So it's God who must overcome. Yes. Right, Mark. Because you can follow those rules and not have your heart changed. That's an excellent reason. Because you can follow the rules and not have your heart changed. Look, I, I, I'm supposed to do two-thirds of chapter three, and I'm, we're not going to get there, but we'll try. We at least ne need to get to the first five, six verses of chapter three. Next, next slide. Let me use an example of why I don't think they're any good. Let's talk about a problem, oh, let's say anger. Anyone here have an issue with anger? You know, actually, this is, do you want to know what missionary kids do? So, you know, there was a missionary community that wasn't a ghetto. We didn't all live together, but, you know, these kids knew each other. And my son says, I just want you to know, Dad, that we, just, we talked about which fathers are the most angry. <laughs> and they rank the fathers. Of, <laughs> and he says, I just want to know, I just want you to know, you won. No, 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 wait, wait. No, no. In a good sense, that I was the more calm of the father, which is really, really scary when you think about it. And the reason I say this is, I know I talk a lot, and so you're not going to believe me, but I really tend to think before I put my mouth in gear about what is the effect this is going to have on the other person, whether it was Gosho or whoever it is. And yet, like in all marriages, see the word anger triggers? There were areas in our marriage where Gosha just had to do one thing or say one thing, 
and the angry words were out of my mouth before I could say count to 10. You know, it wasn't, I mean, just the words were out. And what does this show? It's a heart issue. And you're not gonna corral the flesh, which is sinful, and you're, by rules, and you're not gonna change the heart from the outside in. You're gonna change the heart from the inside out. It's the anger that was already there, the issues I was dealing with that Fagosha who, you know, how many, how many wives have said, what did I say? I just was trying to help. Ah. Yeah, okay, sure. No one wanted to hear what I had to say about marriage, so we won't go there. Uh, anyway, but you understand, the issue is the heart and that God wants to change us from the inside out. And these rules sound, and I'm not against behavior modification. Sometimes that's necessary to put some boundaries, to put some good habits into practice. But God is after changing our heart and sanctifying our soul, our heart, our mind to be conformed to the image of Christ. So how does Paul say we do it? Now, this is, this is not a comprehensive. You should look at John 15. You should look at Galatians 5. You should look at, uh, well, you should look at the whole New Testament, uh, etc. But this is what Paul writes to the Colossians about changing the heart. He, he goes, if then, you got me? Yep. If then you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. I'm going to stop right there. I have a long example. And I just, it really speaks to me. It's not from my personal life. About what does it mean to set your mind on the things above? Because that can be a little... Okay, I'm thinking about God, I guess. Or, you know, what exactly does that mean? So let me tell you about moving to Russia, 1991. It was still the Soviet Union, but that quickly fell. And uh, I had been 14 years in Poland, and I'd already developed a philosophy of, uh, of ministry as a missionary, as a foreigner, which pretty much included learning the language and becoming an insider. Learning the language, learning the culture, becoming an insider. What happened when the Soviet Union fell was it was flooded. I'm looking at some missionary kids here who grew up and, and uh, also other, where are my other missionaries back there? And then, so, you know, missionaries just get along great, don't they? <clears throat> Not really. Uh, <laughs> and there was a flood from other ministries and there was a flood from Campus Crusade and I'm talking about in one year, we had like 120 people move to Russia with no training. <clears throat> they had, now they had training in ministry, but they had no training of what does it mean to live in a foreign culture. And there were leaders who came with them and they were put in charge. And their response was, we don't have time to learn English, you need to get it, uh, excuse me, we don't have time to learn Russian, you need to get into ministry right away which meant that we had tremendous numbers at our meetings because all these Russians were coming to learn English and not necessarily to hear the gospel. Fast forward three years, uh, the powers that me decided in their, well, I can make a joke, but I won't, but they asked me to be the national director. And everyone knew that this would mean a serious change because I was committed to the fact that we would become insiders, 
learn how to not just share the gospel with someone, but disciple someone heart on heart, life to life. That takes the language and raise up Russian leaders who would take over the ministry. And so there was a rather rigorous protocol of you have to stop ministry and learn the language. Now, our training in learning the language says anyone can learn a language. It doesn't depend upon brain power. It just depends upon hard work. And that was great, wonderful propaganda that we told everyone coming over. <laughs> Most everyone can learn the language, and it depends a lot more on hard work than it does on brain power. But we had a couple of people where you just go, oh, I am so sorry. They just, despite the hard work, they weren't going to get there. And one was Bart. Now, Bart was 67. For all you young people out there, when I turned 40, and that's when I started to learn Russian, my brain said, I don't need any new information. Would you please stop? <laughs> OK, now I've turned 60, and the brain goes, if you don't stop, I'm going to stab you in your frontal lobe. Just no more. <laughs> I mean, it's just hard. And Bart came over when he was 65 and had been there two years. And Bart was trying to learn the language. If Bart had been 25, Bart would not have gotten Russian. Just one of those people. You know, the Lord blesses in different ways. Why do I bring this up? When any of us Americans left Russia for furlough or whatever it was, none of us studied Russian because we were, we were in the States. We needed a break. We wanted a vacation from the nonstop language learning, which continues even after you're involved in the ministry and been there four or five years. Bart had been there three years. We were at our conference at Fort Collins, Colorado, at CSU, uh, Colorado State University. We happened to be in the same dorm, and I came out at midnight to the common area. And here is Bart, age 67, without a prayer in the world of ever getting Russian, studying Russian, trying to get better. I mean, it really makes me tear up. And you know what he did when he saw me? You know, the national director, the big meanie? He gets, up, he gets up, comes over to me and says, I am so sorry about how poorly I speak Russian. I really will try so much harder. I literally wanted to cry and kiss his feet because I could have cared less about how well he spoke Russian. The issue was he was pointed in, he was facing the right direction. He would never make it. Now, this is not criticism of Bart. This is the fact that we need to understand we're, we're about as qualified to make God's holiness as Bart was to learn Russian. We're not going to get there because his standard is so high. What does God want from us? The heart attitude that we are facing him and we are pursuing him. And when we fall, by God's grace, we hang on to his hand and pull on his hand and get back up and continue. And when we get down the wrong road and God disciplines us, we get back on the right road and we continue. The picture I want you to have in your mind is which way are you facing? The picture I have to ask myself is which way am I facing? I can face my own desires. I can face my self-indulgence and the things I want to do. I can face my own career. I could go on and on. Or am I pursuing God? Am I seeking the things above? His values, not mine. His kingdom, not mine. His goals. That is what Paul is talking about here. Now, I wish we had more time. I'm literally supposed to speak. They're going to come in and ring a bell on me. So let's just, maybe we won't talk about prayer next week. 
Paul says, in light of this, we need to put to death sinful passions. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion. Yes, yes, that's me. Yes, that's me. Yes, that's me. Including greed. Anyone know how big the, yes. Oh, five minutes. Anyone know how big the uh, Mega Millions lottery is? Uh, if you don't, no, no, don't say. We don't need everyone rushing out and buying tickets. But, you know, I look at the number and I go, you know, because of the math, I go, that's $600 million cold hard cash after taxes. If I take the, not that I've looked at it and done the math, but still, <laughs> you know, I have to tell you, last night I thought, I'm going to buy a ticket. I'm just going, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Anyway, put to death sinful passions. Harder. Put aside evil emotions. Look at them. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech. Oh, really? When you're angry, you're just going to put it aside? We are going to talk about this next week. So this is an advertisement for next week. Not only put off, but put on. So those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness. Instead of all that anger, all the characteristics of Christ himself. And we will have to finish this next week. What I would like you to remember is we are all susceptible to trying to make rules and schedule that we think will make us holy. They won't. They will fail, even if we're successful in fulfilling those goals. We need to have a heart change, and we do that by pursuing God. Which way are you facing this morning? Which way are you facing tomorrow morning and every day this week? Let me close this in prayer. Lord, we bow before you and we give you great praise that Jesus not only died to forgive us our sins, but he died to give us his life and that we can live in the power of his life and we can pursue you and we can experience even here the first fruits of joy and the first fruits of love and patience and kindness. Oh, Father God, I pray that we as a church and as individuals, we would be facing you and pursuing you this week as you as you change our hearts and conform us in sanctification to the image of christ i pray all these things in his most wonderful name amen thank you